Good morning. You all good? I had no idea Foursquare had like high church. I feel like, um, uh, is this how all the churches are set up? No. <laughs> well, it's so good to be with you here today. Um, if you are sitting towards the back, I know some more people are going to trickle in. Uh, thanks for making time. I know you're all busy and this stands between you and lunch, so I recognize that. I promise we'll be done by 1 o'clock. Is that, is that okay? Okay, I know you got places to go, people to see. <laughs> uh, but thank you for coming. Uh, this particular um, workshop is around the theme of leading innovation. And uh, my name is Charles, and uh, I lead a company called Ideation. And what we do is we help people execute. We've worked with all different types of brands and leaders from these companies to help them problem solve and figure out how to actually get their concepts into the world. And so what I wanted to do was take some of the concepts, some of the best practices, working with some of the probably the most innovative people around and try to bring that down to a place that might be digestible and secondly, more practically, tactically applicable. Does that sound good? So the way that I'm framing our time today is in three, three different sections. And I actually have bonus content, if we have time at the end, that goes over current trends we're seeing. We do a trends, uh, we usually do research around trends and what's happening in multiple different types of industries, if we have time. If not, grab me in the hall and ask me, you know, what the top three trends are. Um, but today, what I want is I want to frame the work of innovation I want to also maybe give you a potential process for innovation. And thirdly, give you some practical tips on how to integrate it into your culture, your organization, and how to lead through change. Sound good? That's like high, like multiple promises, right? I, I may not be able to fulfill, but uh, I promise that if you could even just take one or two of the principles here, I think you're going to find that um, you're going to be able to solve more problems more quickly and be able to kind of accelerate the impact you're doing. Because I believe if there needs to be innovation, it probably needs to be in the church and how leadership is shaped. You, all of you here, run some of the most eclectic, dynamic, complex, multi-layered organizations in the world. And in most cases, you probably were not trained for that. <laughs> so I feel you as former... Um, I used to teach at LPU uh, for several years. Um, I also um, was a pastor of multiple congregations. So I feel your pain, and I couldn't not stick with it. <laughs> uh, no, I, I loved that time, um, but ended up starting this company about 13 years ago. So let me, let me jump in and talk about framing the work of innovation. Uh, let me ask you, when you think about innovation, who or what do you think about? What's like the first instinctive, like visual you get in your mind? Apple? Okay. It could be brands. It could be people. Anyone else? Being creative. Being creative. Great. Dreaming. Dreaming. Internet. Internet. Okay. Absolutely. Tesla. Tesla. Yep. Yep. Crypto? Great. Elon Musk. I love and dislike that man. Um, <laughs> for multiple reasons. Um, yeah, innovation is interesting. Someone mentioned creativity. Uh, I want to, you know, kind of frame a little bit of what innovation is and maybe is not. I don't think innovation is the same thing as creativity. I think creativity is a subset of innovation. But innovation at its core is really about solving problems. Like how to take something and make it better in an ideal scenario so that it becomes a better offering for the world, whether it's a product or a service. And so uh, creativity is a big part of innovation, but I don't want you to think that I can't be innovative unless I'm a creative person. In fact, some of the top innovators in the world are not the ones that are on stage. It's usually people behind them. Uh, normally someone who is very innovative will have a whole team behind them stressing out <laughs> of like how to actually implement concepts, ideas, 
vision, mission, all of those kinds of things. But innovators are really good that they can use, you know, both sides of their brain. They could, you know, really think about problems and be clear about strategic clarity and then designing a path forward. So let's, let's talk a little bit about framing the work of innovation. I think the first thing to think about is what type of innovation do you want to engage as a leader? When you do research around the field of innovation, what you'll notice is they tend to ultimately come down to three large uh, buckets, category buckets. One is systemic innovation. Now, this is the type of innovation that changes the game, literally. This is a type of innovation that creates new categories of, of organizations or businesses. A good example would be like, you know, you've heard of companies like Airbnb. You've heard of companies that are constantly evolving, like Uber. These are places like companies that came along and said, you know what, we're not just going to compete in an existing category. We're going to create a brand new one. So if Uber says, look, I'm not going to become another uh, taxi company, but we're going to be a software business that connects drivers to riders, that's a completely different type of systemic innovation. That type of innovation requires the highest level leaders of an organization to be engaged. So one of the questions I often ask is, you know, when leaders say, we I want to innovate our organization is, what type of innovation do you want to actually engage? So that's one type of innovation. That, that has to do with business strategy, organizational strategy, really thinking through how are we going to change, really, how are we going to change the game? Now, if you're going to engage that, just be ready to lose a lot of people. <laughs> Uh, get a lot of perplexing views around the room because you're going to have to build things from the ground up. That's a high lift. You need probably some expertise. You probably need insiders and outsiders in the room to build this out. The second type of innovation is a core product innovation or maybe in some of uh, your context is a core program innovation. This is probably one of the most common forms of innovation is taking what you're already doing really well and making it that much better. Um, you know, years ago, there was a, there's a company called Intuit. Some of you may be familiar with it now. But they created uh, software for personal banking, right? And they, they uh, developed it, and their customers loved it, keep track of your credits and debits at a personal level. And a lot of individuals said, hey, could I use, can you guys develop software that I can use for my small business? And um, they kept listening, kept experimenting, because people were taking personal kind of finance and applying to their business context. And that's how they came up with QuickBooks. So it's taking what they were already good at and making it that much better. And then later on, they added things like TurboTax. So those are like things you already know. That's like your core strength, how to innovate better. Now, in this level of innovation, you don't always need the highest level of the organization in the room. You need practitioners. You need people who are as close to the customer, if you will, as possible. It's a highly empathetic process um, to really feel uh, empathy for the person you're serving. The best ideas are the ideas that come from really the environment in which the ideas will flourish. Uh, a good example of this is imagine if all of us were tasked to uh, create the next, I don't know, Honda Odyssey. One way to do it is to get super smart, talented people in a strategic boardroom to make a path for the future on what the future of a minivan may be. That's one way to do it. A more of a secondary way to do it is more of what they call design thinking, is a high customer-centric, empathy-driven type of discovery process where it's, um, you know, it would say, hey, let's all go ahead in a room this size, let's rent 40 minivans, Honda Odysseys, and let's go on a road trip. And for those of you who are used to driving, sit in the back. For those of you who are used to controlling the music, uh, we're going to have somebody else control it. And you start creating it. If you're, you know, hot in the front, let's see what it's like in the middle row. And what you do is you start building empathy for the person you're trying to serve. And I think core product innovation really requires that sense of, you know what, we're going to take what we're really good at, but we're going to pay attention to our customers, which is similar to the last one is a customer experience type of innovation 
or some type of brand experience. Has anyone here ever flown like Virgin America by chance? Okay, a few people. Uh, they're probably not as prominent as they used to be, but when they first came out, I had a chance to sit down with um, the, the gentleman who created the whole brand experience for, for, for them. And he talked about how they walk through from beginning to end, like the check-in uh, process or the booking process where you could print out a paper and fold it into four sides and that becomes your boarding pass. Or, uh, you know, getting, well, they couldn't do anything about TSA, but they <laughs> go into the airline and you have like ambient music playing, flight attendants in black. Uh, the specific type of color lighting chosen, the seat design, what the restroom looks like. All of those are touch points, which is a brand experience. And so innovating that, once again, requires a deep empathy. And I think that's something that as you get more and more senior and more quote-unquote professional in your industry, or in this case, in your vocation as a, say, a pastoral leader, it's easier to forget what it's like on the ground. And I think that's something that I think a lot of executives learned through the 80s and 90s. There was a great book called Execution. And uh, it talked about all these CEOs that lost touch with their workforce. And then, but after that, after all these new CEOs came in and we started seeing CEOs eat in the cafeteria at the company. <laughs> and so it kind of depends which area of innovation you wanna go into. You may need different individuals to come and, um, you know, give you a site. Like, so when you go to, like, uh, brand experience, you know, you could do, like, mental exercise. Like, what if, and it doesn't mean you're going to make your church this way. What if, what would a church look like if it were a hotel? So you start doing mashups of mental exercise. Say, are there aspects of, like, concierge service or the way that things are prepped, the way that experience is laid out? You could start doing these, like, kind of fun exercises to get the mind going, to think about, is there a way to solve some of the difficulties? You know, I've had the fortune of, uh, over the years, just uh, dropping in on uh, Chick-fil-A's innovation area. And, and in their innovation building, they actually, before they go into a city, they build out actual restaurant space. They have real customers come in. So if, say, before they go into Manhattan, they'll build out the entire space. And they'll test out flow by moving walls six inches moving lines in a different place. And so no matter how crowded it is, it's amazing how they work through all of their customers, right? And so it's, but it's a commitment to those small types of details to be able to say, hey, we're gonna tweak the customer experience and we're gonna bring in specialists who specialize in things like space and other things of design so that we can do this better. This next slide is going to be the most consultant-like slide you'll see during this presentation. But I want to show it to you because I think it's important. Um, Clayton Christensen uh, is a gentleman who um, came up with this, professor at Harvard. I got to take a, a um, certified program with him around disruptive innovation. He's the one who coined disruptive innovation. And he talks about that every organization has some type of profit or purpose formula. Okay, and tell me if this is true or not. That's kind of like your vision, the things you lay forth for your team, and this is the path you want to go. What happens is based on that profit purpose formula, you allocate resources, right? If it's a priority, you'll spend money on it, you'll spend, you know, you'll develop teams around it. And then what happens is you take strategic actions with those resources in the middle there, where you have new products, services, processes, whatever it is, you start actually putting resources behind your vision. And then what happens is as you go day to day, your actual strategy arises. Okay, this is important for leaders to know that even if you have a vision up front, your team is working off of your actual strategy when it's actually in the real world. And those two strategies are not necessarily alike. In fact, a lot of times they're very different. And so as you're actually doing the work of the ministry, one of two things will happen. Either you may actually develop what's called deliberate strategy, which is improve understanding of what works and what, what doesn't. So this is the type of thinking that arises that says, you know what, we could do this better. This isn't working that. So a lot of organizations do this. But sometimes you're doing the work and then you get un 
anticipated opportunities which arise from problems and successes. This is called emergence strategy. This is the type of strategy that arises because you're like, hey, I wasn't expecting that, but it came up. So when we talk about innovation, what's important to note is if you have the type of new insights that help you become better at who you are in your core DNA, of course you want to implement it back into your resource allocation. But there are ideas that aren't core to your DNA. Is in innovation, we found that it doesn't work to force it back into the DNA of the organization. For example, when Facebook acquired Instagram, they didn't make Instagram Facegram, right? They let the team at Instagram still run. I, 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 this is just a uh, thought exercise, and I'm no expert, so you're, you're the expert in this room. In the room, but um, you know, think about like how many times there have been ministries that have then contemporary worship services or new young people gatherings. And if you're honest, you're going to know that the DNA is actually different. You, you could call it two families or one family with two expressions, whatever you want to call it. If the, but the core essence is different, it's different. And I think instead of forcing it back in, which hasn't worked in any business, by the way, <laughs> that I know of, um, is to let it kind of be its own thing. And that's healthier when it comes to idea execution. Give it its own team. Sometimes something spins off and you want to share resources. That should be a very short commitment. The idea is if you want health for that new emerging idea, and it doesn't fit directly into the DNA of your organization, let it be. Okay. I know it's a nicer, cleaner narrative if you say we're all just one, but this is healthy too, allowing emergent things to go and let them flourish in their own context and such. So this is just kind of framing innovation, some, some, uh, some ways to think about this. Uh, then let's talk about developing a process. Um, One good question to really ask uh, when it comes to like innovation is, what's the real job we're doing here? What's the real job to be done? Sometimes the real job is not what you're trying to do. It kind of gets to the core of why you want to implement that new program, why you want to implement that new site, why you want to implement whatever it is you want to implement. And... It's okay that that motivation, um, I think, is not necessarily an organizational motivation. For example, when we work with um, executives, we'll do work to help them implement an idea that they have for their company. But I know the real job we're doing is we're helping the executive become very successful in their work. So our team doesn't lose sight that it's not just the actual work we deliver to them, but it's how we help them position themselves as, a, as someone who is, you know, a good leader. They're going to be successful. They're going to be a linchpin in their company. And sometimes asking, like, what's the real job will then dictate your expectations. For example, if you, we were, say, as a group, hey, let's start a, uh, I don't know, a bagel shop here in Orlando. One way you could do it is become very idealistic and say, you know what, we're going to have a drive through bagel shop that is the best bagels in the world, right? Because we're going to honor God with the best bagels in the world, right? <laughs> right? Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that aspiration. But, but say that your customers, what they're really looking for is good enough bagels that you can make quickly through a drive-through so they can get to work. And I've been guilty of this, right? Have you ever created programs and outreaches for your church for people that don't even exist? Right? Like you could have hundreds or thousands of people show up and you're like, oh, shoot, this is not the audience we're going for. <laughs> or take the audience of a previous ministry and apply it to your new one. <laughs> And, and so I think it's really important, like, what job are you really doing? And sometimes when you're serving a leader, and it, it, they may have a vision for the church, 
But I don't know. Some of it has to do with their self-esteem. Some reason why they choose an idea has to do with other things that are in play. And it may not just be, so don't just be distracted by the idea. Make sure you understand why the person, or you even, you're going for it. Because it can be fine, healthy, neutral, or uh, it could be bad. It could be uh, unhealthy, why, think, why uh, people go for it. So here, here's one process to think about. This is what uh, we often take our clients through, is if you have a problem you're trying to solve, we usually start with framing the challenge of that problem. Like, how big is it? How daunting of a task is it? And, and this is kind of speaking as someone who's also been in ministry for a long time, is that sometimes we tackle problems that are so huge that it's not to say God can't do it, right? But I think it's more of a clarifying thing is if you want to end crime in your city, <laughs> that's a big problem. The better question is how will our church participate in ending crime in our city versus how is our church going to end crime in our city? This, it's like really right-sizing what is the challenge you're really trying to solve for. And there is this undue pressure because of being people of faith is that when God gives you vision, he doesn't necessarily give you all the details, right? And because of that, we can get overwhelmed because once you start working, you realize, man, there are a lot of details. And it's possible that we could use kind of this, we could use God as the inspiration and the scapegoat. It wasn't God's timing. Well, sometimes it's just bad execution. <laughs> you just sprinkle Jesus over that exchange. Right? It may be a lack of stewardship. Not so much that God didn't necessarily want you to do that. So I think framing the challenge is very important. And this is why the skill set of really solving problems is super helpful for any leader, especially a leader of a complex organization or institution uh, like many of you in the room. And then thinking in terms of like, are we seeing the unseen? Are there presuppositions or biases in this problem solving? Am I assuming our city needs a community center? Am I assuming we need some type of after-school program? The only way you can unsee this is to get also other people in the room so that they can give you perspective that maybe you don't have. Maybe interviewing people that you're actually hoping to serve might be a good starting point. I don't know of a good company that doesn't listen to its customers. Right? And so it's, it's kind of interesting because if the inspiration comes top-down then it's harder to stop and say, no, the inspiration can come bottom up from an organizational standpoint. So seeing the unseen, and there are different ways you could do this. You can get outside help. Uh, you could write things down. Um, you could do a lot of those kinds of things. And then you start ideating divergence. Like this is where everything, nothing is a no, and everything is a yes and. And you allow to quickly, and when you get to a place of like ideating, we often say, look, go fast and go wide. Don't worry about budgets. Don't worry about anything. Just go really, really fast in, in your ideas and do it in a short period of time. You know, there's some studies from Harvard that talk about brainstorming. If you allocate an hour to brainstorming, over 70% of the good solid ideas come in the first 30 minutes. The other 30 minutes, we're kind of wasting time. <laughs> so... It's, it's really knowing that if you created compact versus say, hey, let's spend just three weeks. Sometimes it, you just need a sprint. Sprint to get things going, writing on paper. And then what you start to do is you start to converge it with like design thinking, which is like the customer-centric type of thinking. And you start taking ownership like, okay, you ask questions like, is, it, is this idea desirable? Is this solution that we're thinking about, is it, do people even want it? Because if you're not careful, you're going to create programs and new products and offer things to the world. And it will, it will change your bottom line, your purpose line for a short period. But it will also burn out your team. Because that's the way like sometimes companies, I know what management consultants generally do. They go into a company, here's how you 
increased revenue. You cut costs, so you lay off people, right? And you increase revenue by introducing new products. Because that at least creates a spike on the revenue, your net profits for a little while. But since all of you here are very thoughtful people about ministry, part of this is also thinking through, like, okay, is it, is it a desirable idea? Have I talked to anybody who will actually benefit from my idea? Secondly, is it a feasible idea, given your current context for resources, staffing? Can you pull it off? Can you actually execute on it? And thirdly, is it viable? Is there a sustainable, sustainable model behind that? I'm a firm believer that God can provide and will provide in a lot of cases. But still, do your part to say, can we drive sustainability around this? Or are we just furthering, thinning out the resources that we have? So I think that's, that's a good point is like converging into design thinking. And if you have a couple of ideas that are kind of rising to the surface, you'll notice that after you diverge and go into convergence, that there will be clusters of ideas on the board and they have similar ideas and people start building upon each other's ideas, but you should end up with two or three viable solutions. And then what you do is you start prototyping it out. That might be a, just an exercise of getting people into groups to say, hey, if we're going to pitch this to, say, a city leader, what will we say? Or if it's a physical thing, I would get everything from cardboard to paper to kind of build it out to see what the flow is. So if you're trying to create a new flow into your uh, church, say, sanctuary, or create, you know, first-time visitor experiences or midweek gatherings, whatever the case may be, is to physically build out a model so you could see and feel and talk about and point to the things, whether it may or may not work. Versus having theoretical conversation about it that's not documented at all. Uh, so you rapidly prototype knowing that it's not going to be your final. And then you iterate that forward regularly. And the, the reality is the idea you start with is rarely the idea you end up with. The key is to get started and start moving. And so for those of you who are visual, it kind of looks like this. You start with a challenge. You right-size it. You go out really wide, diverge, come in through some filtering like, you know, desirability, feasibility, viability, and then you end up with a potential solution. You could go. And I understand, like, the unique dynamic of the church is because since you are all people who God has chosen to do the work of the ministry, there's a lot of pressure for you never to be wrong. I'm sorry, in innovation, you can't always be right. In fact, 94% of innovation projects fail within companies. But those companies are, in your mind, probably the most innovative companies that you just mentioned at the beginning. It's okay. You have to give permission for R&D, research and development. You have to give permission for prototyping. You have to give permission for, quote-unquote, failure of an idea, if you will. You can call it whatever you want. You could fail up, whatever you want to call it. Uh, but that's the reality of innovation. So if you're going to be committed to innovation, it's going to require some extra resources. So we've seen groups starting to maybe even like nonprofits have been doing this really well lately, is they allocate budget for innovation. They allocate, they're getting donors specifically so that they can innovate. And so the narrative is shifting from an 80-20 rule for nonprofits, for example, where 80% goes to programs, 20% goes to staffing and admin. I mean, the reality is we're hiding staffing costs under programs. <laughs> A lot of cases we're working internationally. Uh, and so I think it, it's an opportunity for you to say, no, we need to set the narrative and the culture that we're going to be committed to actually innovating what we believe God's brewing in us. So, um, so let's get practical a little bit for what this means for you as a leader of integrating and leading forward. So far, so good. Are you with me? Okay. It's always good because I, you know, when people have funny looks on their faces, uh, it's usually a good sign <laughs> that your mind is somewhere uh, thinking, thinking about a particular context. So that's great. So let's, let's talk. Um, we, we realized that there are a couple of different, like, 
um, common behaviors human beings go through, not just in innovation, but just as human beings. And we, have, we took one from technology and we took one from actually grief counseling. And we realized there's some common things of how ideas uh, get innovated within an organization. The first one is from tech. We thought this was a good illustration is the Gardner hype cycle. This is for uh, in the technology, but I think it's true of any innovative idea. So in technology, there's usually some type of tech idea that comes to the surface. And then what happens is everyone gets excited. Hey, if only we could do this app. <laughs> or if we could, you know, we found the next super app. And what happens is it leads to a peak of inflated expectations. Been there, anyone? It's so exciting up there, <laughs> right? You're with your team, you're on an offside, you go to a retreat, what have you, and you're like, this is the best idea since the wheel. I mean, it, it's an amazing idea. And everyone's super excited. Then you come back from the offside, and people start getting phone calls and Somebody's complaining about the church because they love to complain, but they won't leave, right? <laughs> and it's this constant flow, like, like unexpected, maybe a death in the congregation. And slowly but surely, you're like, whoa, our vision was so exciting. We're hitting reality now. And you, many people enter the trough of disillusionment, especially if it's a big idea. And you're like, there's no way this is going to ha happen. <laughs> it's just too hard. And there's parts of our brain, some people call it the lizard brain, that kicks in that says, there's no way you're going to launch this. And, give, and it gives you every single irrational reason as to why it won't work. Isn't it amazing that we are super optimistic when it's someone else's idea? <laughs> like, ah, oh, you could do it. God's going to work through you. It's going to be amazing. You're going to change the world. You have the skill set, the gifting, blah, blah, blah. But when it comes to us, then we're like, oh, I don't think I could do it. And it becomes challenging. And so if you stick with it, eventually you'll get to the slope of enlightenment because there will be these aha moments saying, and you may even say, you know what? This is not really the problem we're solving for. We're doing something else and it makes a lot more sense. But you won't know that until you start. Isn't that true? The questions you ask at the beginning are not the same questions that actually come up when you're doing the work. Because if you're actually doing it, you would be asking different questions, right? I remember when I was teaching at LPU, sometimes we would uh, do devotionals before a class. And I remember uh, one, one morning, it was pretty early, a student asked, Charles, I just don't want to be like legalistic in my devotions. So I'm thinking about how to do it best. <laughs> right? I want to, like, pure heart. I want to do it. I'm like, that's, I, you know, how do you do it without being legalistic? And my response was, that's a question someone would ask if they're not doing it. <laughs> right? You have other struggles if you're actually doing it. So I think the reality is, like, stick with it. Resist the urge to listen to your self-defense mechanisms. Get to the slope of alignment, and if, eventually if you keep at it and stay focused and keep writing things down, you'll reach really what's called the plateau of productivity. Okay, let me give you another scenario. This is more from area of psychology, but I think it's true of ideas as well. Um, how many are familiar with this curve? Some of you? Great. So what we did is we overlaid it with what we can do through the life stage of an idea because change is not easy for most people. This is mostly, I mean, on the left side of the chart, in a moment you'll just see what people go through as they go through grief. But I think from a leadership change management type of perspective, um, people go through grief as well, right? If, you've if you're introducing something that people in your congregation are not used to, you have to let people grieve through it as well. So, you know, initially there may be a shock of the new idea, right? And what sometimes happens is people go into denial that, no, we are not going to change as a church like that. 
when that happens on the right side, you'll see a corresponding color-wise is if there's that immediate response of like shock and they're saying, this isn't real, this change isn't real. Why are you our new pastor? <laughs> like this change isn't real. Is to create alignment as to why you're doing what you're doing. I think it's important to communicate is that this is actually in line with the mission of the organization and the vision that we believe that God has set before us. But like anything else, there will be frustration. Recognition that things are different. So people will feel like, oh man, this is, this is really hard, really frustrating. I don't know if I want to be a part of this. It's in that time that you have to maximize communication. Over-communicate why it's once again happening and that alignment is purposeful. And I think this is a spot where it's not to pull back, but press in to communicating a lot. Because that also prevents the he said, she said, right? And then people will get to a place where it's very depressing because they don't want to deal with this new change. And when that happens, it's really less about information. It's more about motivation. This may be your team. Is It's not so much just their lack of willingness at that point. But it's those times where you want to figure out some creative ways to motivate teams to stay focused, that this is actually going to pan out. And then eventually, people will become a little bit more open to experimenting with your new model, experimenting with all of the changes. And at that time, it's about developing capability. Now you've moved from motivation to skill set. And as they're kind of coming out of the fog, you want to give them the resources and the skill set necessary to function in their new roles, potentially, to be able to get some training both within the organization and outside and really get them to a place where they feel like they know they'll learn how to do it. Um, and then there's often a decision point where learning how to work in the new situation, people will get there, and that's where you allow team members to share knowledge about what they're experiencing, how they've benefited from this change. You want to tell good stories and narratives around this time to reinforce why we went through this difficult season, but we're kind of coming out of it, and we're going to be better for it as an organization, and ultimately integrating that forward. So the changes are integrated, and things, if you see here, is a, you become a renewed individual to take on the next season uh, of leadership. All this to say is people, human beings are incredibly complex, aren't they? You're pretty complex. And it's not easy to lead through difficult changes. Now, they may jump back and forth, but when, when they do, it's kind of helpful to kind of know how to respond, how to react to those leadership opportunities. And it is individualized work. And I know the bigger the team, the more challenging it becomes. But having like core team members that are working with you to kind of understand some of these dynamics will be super helpful as you move forward. All right, so let's get to some um, maybe some fun things or easy things that, you know, you can do that will create long-term healthy habits. Leading innovation is a long-term commitment to healthy habits. Um, a lot of this should become hopefully second nature, but until it does, I think we need to continually still work on it. First of all, this is going to be, all of these are going to be fun for you, I promise. Number one, um, create space to think, reflect, and diverge. Um, it's very clear, most innovators that we work with, even though they're incredibly busy, that wasn't a joke, even though they're incredibly busy, incredibly busy, they make time. And often they will, there's some commonality, is a lot of them will go to a place that's bigger than themselves. So it might be the ocean, 
It might be a mountain. It may be the desert, wherever the case may be. And in those moments, a lot of times they, they're not actively working on um, a project. They're just being. And that's really hard to do because I don't know, some of you are workaholics. Probably a lot of you are workaholics, if not most of you are work. Well, I think all of you are workaholics. Is that you may feel guilty for taking time off. But innovation doesn't work like that, especially in this space, is that it's, it sounds paradoxical, but the more time you take to create space for your mind, the better you innovate. And actually, there's been plenty of studies that show innovation speeds up when leaders create space for their teams. So think, but it doesn't have to be a devotion. If you want to pray, fine. You could do that. But just to be in the moment to say, to become aware of your environment, maybe become aware of where your health is in that moment, become aware of your breathing. You know, there's a reason why a lot of people get up and they, I know it's not necessarily a Christian form of meditation, but they meditate as a daily practice because it allows them to kind of be aware of where, who they are, where they are at. And it helps them so, so effectively. And we do similar things in prayer. And I'm not saying just jump into Eastern meditation, but don't forget there's like value and stillness and, you know, not necessarily putting your phone next to your bed, not having to check Facebook as you wake up, that you could maybe even like read 15 minutes. If you have kids under 12, you're excused. <laughs> But the rest of us, right, if our kids are getting older, is that choosing not to react immediately is a good practice, right? Um, the other thing is welcome the unexpected. Um, innovation is often the result of two or more seemingly unrelated ideas that intersect. And if that's the case, is how often can we put ourselves in environments that are not what we're used to. So one of the things that I do every year is to go to a conference not in my space. I'm the oddball out. I don't understand the terminology. I've sat in on medical stuff. I've sat in on like, you know, um, app developer conferences. I mean, while we develop apps, I'm not a, I don't code in any way. But just to sit there and kind of listen to how other people solve problems is very helpful. Most of you live in cities that have a business network. You should visit it sometimes just to see what people are talking about. You could really start to build empathy of what a small business owner in your town is actually going through. What are the things that are offered? So just kind of understanding a little bit of like put yourself in an environment that you're not used to to maybe spark some creative conversations. You know, some of you in here could not, you know, Design your way out of a paper bag. <laughs> Go to a design conference. Watch one online. So just to kind of look at the unexpected. The other thing is, um, some of you do this better than others, is play well. That's not, I guess, yeah, that's good too. Play well and play often. It's not a waste of time. Play tr uh, really triggers parts of your brain that are normally not tapped. Um, some of the competitive side in you, some of the fun problem-solving side that you have. It may be as simple as playing board games with your team, going to an off-site. I don't know. Some of you who golf, go to Top Golf. Whatever the case may be, is I think play is an important part to get away. Just laugh, not take yourself so seriously. Don't even worry about solving anything. That's how we create shared human experiences, isn't it? <laughs> right? Like how many of you feel like, man, I really bonded with my senior pastor because that strategic meeting was just amazing. <laughs> right? 
Okay, Sean Appleton out here. He used to be my senior pastor when I was a youth pastor. Um, I was like a random Asian guy in Lancaster, California, doing youth ministry. The only Korean in town, people used to ask me to be where the Chinese restaurants were, uh, which was funny back then, but now I'm a little bit ticked. Um, <laughs> but, like, we had this 40-passenger bus. I don't know if you still have it. Faith bus? Okay. We had this bus called the Faith bus for multiple reasons. It was this old bus. I would have to learn how to drive, right, up to Big Bear for camps and stuff. And, and uh, one, I had, looking back, I'm like, what are these parents thinking? Like, trusting a 20-something-year-old with a bus full of 40 kids. Um, but I... The only place that had DMV testing available was Ventura, which was like, what, two hours away? So Pastor Sean and I, we drove it there to get my test, and I failed. I really think the instructor was like having a bad day. She had dark shades on early in the morning. Uh, and so I failed, and we came back, and I felt so bad, right? I, I took him all the way to Ventura. I got to do it again, but Sean, those of you who know Sean, he never, like, he's always smiling, <laughs> always positive, and he took me back. That's what I remember more than Sean sitting in a staff meeting, and, you know, I'm sorry if this hurts you, but staff meeting going, hey, we should do this as a vision of our church, right? And I think really play and shared experiences is really vital for leadership development. And I want to bring this back because this is a lost art you all have become so professional in what you do many of you have forgotten how to play and then get up and speak about joy no I'm just here's another one that's so simple it's going to blow you away is experience the miracle of writing things down this is wild some of you are literally writing things down on paper i'm so impressed <laughs> but writing things down is really, really important because whether you type it in or, you know, use more senses and writing it down on paper is because did you know that people who keep talking about their idea are statistically less likely to implement the idea? Because talking about the idea tricks your brain into thinking you're actually doing something with your idea. Anybody have any friends you meet for coffee and like three years later, they still have the same idea? And then one time they show up and then go, oh, so-and-so stole my idea. <laughs> right? I think writing it down is a good habit, and this is the way that I've kind of developed a network, uh, developed really new friendships. We move forward really well on projects. Is because when I'm in a conversation, often I'll write a follow-up email and say, this is what I heard from you. This is what we talked about. And I believe this, these are the next steps. Um, does it sound good? And I'll follow by a certain, certain day. It forces action. Or if you have an idea you're just playing around with, write it down, even print it on paper or email it to a person before you go out to coffee. Now you have a document that's a point of reference that people can make better. So writing things down is a big part of ideating. And it's really important that this is part of just kind of your process. Let me end with a couple of things and I'll open up for some Q&A. And um, if tomorrow's workshop goes longer, we'll do some other trend stuff um, if you want to come back. Uh, here's, a, here's a few things. Is, I love this quote. It says, the best way to predict the future is to invent it, is really to innovate it. And it's, it's less about allowing the future to happen to you. It's about doing what you can to build the type of future that would honor God and keep you fulfilled. I was walking through the office of one of our clients, and they had this up on the wall. Inspiration doesn't favor those who sit still. It dances with the daring. Just like you, some of you may have heard another quote, chance favors the prepared mind. If you're ready for innovation and your mind is on it, you'll see it all over the place. You'll see systemic innovation. You'll see product innovation. You'll see uh, customer experience innovations. Wherever you go, you'll see it. It's like if you want to buy a particular car, what happens? 
suddenly all the cars show up in your visibility, right? Because you're looking for it. What are you looking for? If you want to be better at problem solving, there's plenty of ways to look for solutions if you're willing to look for it, right? I always say this, think big, and I know all of you think big, start small, right? Do something. I always tell our team, look, if all of us can do one thing better in our jobs this week, in 52 weeks, we're going to be a different company. Just one thing. Like, let's do better customer service. Let's, let's think of a process a little bit better. Let's redesign a chart so it's clearer. Whatever that one thing is, it really changes everything. But the thing that's really important is you got to keep moving, right? It's easier to guide a wild stallion than it is to guide a tree, right? I think movement not only creates momentum, but it gives you perspective, new angles, and then it allows you to actually execute better. All right, we have about 15 minutes now, so I'd love to just kind of open up for Q&A if you want to contextualize. I know this was a lot of content, uh, but hopefully there were one or two things that you could walk away with. So we could talk Q&A, we could talk trends, whatever you want. So let me just turn it over to you. Anybody have any like questions or yes? Yeah. Um, I think when people are way down, whether in a depressed state or in that tech curve too, is like disillusionment, is a lot of leaders do tend to give up, saying maybe this was a bad idea. It's like whenever I feel like that, I have to believe that I'm on the brink of something. And it may be a bad idea, but some clarity will usually arise if you stick with it. If you document things, you go back to it. And uh, there are plenty of ideas that we're like, ah, oh, that's not going to work. Every time we present an idea to a client, there's probably a dozen that didn't work. So that's just kind of the nature of it. And we have to be okay with it. Uh, but that's, that's a hard part because it's so emotional. Like, how many would agree, like, whether you like it or not, your ideas are personal. When people don't like your ideas, who doesn't take it personally? Right? That's, that's hard. And this is why, like, artists have a hard time expressing sometimes. This is why writers have a hard time. That's why some of you have written 80% of the book and it's still not published. It's hard. It's personal. But I want you to know this. Like, when I was uh, finishing up uh, my book um, several years ago, like, I got to the end and I was like, oh, man, this is going to go to print. And it's going to, like, I'm going to change my mind <laughs> on the content. And a good author friend of mine, he said, look, Charles, your book at 80% of what you want to say is much better than you having a book at 95% and never publishing. And he, he's like, no one's going to read it anyway. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's, yeah, win-win. It's cool. And I, I got to say, like, majority of people never read through the entire book. Most men only read through chapter five of the book. So... Um, <laughs> The reality is, uh, it's okay, but it, it's got me into a lot of rooms. But yes. Yeah. Yeah. Good way to denote. Um, great question. I would, um, do you usually handwrite them somewhere? Okay. That makes it a little bit more difficult. I mean, there's different ways to organize notes. I mean, obviously, there are software like Evernote where it'll tag keywords for you so you could search things by keywords. It's like digitally filed. So if you just type in, I don't know, a particular phrase, they'll find it for you in all of your notes. So that's, I found, I use Evernote and that's been super helpful. Ah, well, it's in the cloud. So technically I can open it up in any device that I have. So that's, or, you know, you could, nowadays you could, 
if you have like a, um, there's apps that will help you take pictures of your, I mean your iPhone, if you have an iPhone, take pictures of your notes and then transcribe it into digital. That's one way to save it. But far as like organizing notes, uh, there's multiple different approaches to it. One way I like is, you know, when you're in a meeting, uh, I try to divide it up where you have just general note taking. And generally, I encourage everyone in our meetings to take notes because if you're not taking notes, you probably don't have to be in the meeting. It's probably not that important to you, right? I no offense, but if you're not taking notes in a meeting, it's probably not your meeting. You don't you don't really have to be there. Um, so either take notes in a meeting, but also have a sec two sections. One is what's actionable next coming out of the meeting. So I'll just have bullet points of like one, two things. If there's more than two, I get overwhelmed. So just a couple of things I need to do coming out of that meeting. And the other thing are uh, what um, I think Scott Belsky calls like um, back burner ideas. So how many have ever been distracted in a meeting with an idea that has nothing to do with the agenda? Okay, so one of the things that really helped is creating a culture that says, you know what, that's a great idea, and we'll have a separate meeting just for that idea. And it gives people permission to put that idea to the side. And as a leader of a meeting and facilitator, you want to bring it back to the intent of the meeting. Because people's time are very precious, and your staff time, if you're a senior pastor and you have a staff of, say, 20 people, next time sit down and do the math of how much that meeting is costing the church. That's a lot of money, unless they're all volunteer. <laughs> That's still a lot of money. It, it is very, it's, it's, it's money, and it's money well spent if it's well prepared, right? So there may be things like that that may help um, organize. And I got to say this before I go because I'm like half introvert, half extrovert, is for your introverts, doing a brainstorm off the cuff is incredibly stressful. Stop doing that. <laughs> For every meeting that's meaningful, there should be an on-ramp and off-ramp. So for introverts' sake, if you're going to discuss ideas and have an open session, give them the questions ahead of time. So they can do some work alone, and when they come to the meeting, they'll actually be prepared. Right? And then afterwards, the follow-up, like creating cadence of like on-ramp, off-ramp to the next meeting. What do we need to do by the next one? What do we need to send to them to prep for the next meeting? So I think that's kind of the type of the cadence you want to kind of think about when it comes to productivity. Any other questions or comments? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it kind of uh, depends on your, are you a senior pastor? Okay. Yeah, for you, I mean, the question you're constantly asking is like, in all those areas, I mean, unfortunately in your role, you have to put on those caps. One of the ways that we've helped like executives think about it is, it's very overwhelming to think about all three. But think about one type of innovation each month. And then you'll notice things while you're like going you know, experiencing a worship experience or going to a small group that month, think about customer experience. Or think about, like, a product one time. That might be, like, looking over the curriculum again. Or just, like, allocating a set time. So you don't have to keep doing all of these all the time because you're going to probably use different parts of your brain to do that. So if you're going to do a month around curriculum, maybe that's a great month to sit down with somebody on your team that's really good at curriculum or sitting down with a, even, like, a school teacher. And saying, hey, here's what we're doing at discipleship. Are we, like, hitting, are we teaching effectively to a small group? Or, you know, um, you could do, like, creative things like that where you bring some expertise. I'm assuming they're in your congregation already. Because um, now that I'm on the other side of the fence sitting at church, uh, I realize, like, I appreciate you staying organized and having a theme for a series, but I, if you were to ask me what happened in part two and we're in part three, I would have no idea. It helps you stay organized more than me, which is good. I, I, I appreciate communicators being organized. Uh, but I also feel very untapped, like, far as what can I do? And if all my ministry opportunities are really just either join something or... 
Nothing against ushering or parking lot security, like all those kinds of things are all needed. And there are seasons where I want to do that. Um, but I'm like, I help billion dollar corporations figure stuff out. <laughs> right? And I don't know, I guess I could give. That's one avenue. But you have in your congregation some of the most talented people in your area. So vocational integration, thinking about even like sermon illustrations. I know your world is your world, but maybe sitting down and hearing about like what are the you know, top three challenges of a small business owner right now? What are the top three challenges of an educator? What are top three challenges of a medical professional these days? How's your mental health? as you're serving so many people through COVID. Like all of these kinds of things are people sitting there, but if we're asking them just to volunteer for specific set ministry areas, I feel like you're missing out. You could probably bring together a team to better serve your city, and actually they'll give you the resources and the wisdom on how to do it. Um, so th that's just something. And so our church has been great. Um, I got to do a workshop on branding small businesses. <laughs> And it was like the most attended workshop and the least spiritual, <laughs> if you will. And most attended workshop, and it helped a lot of small businesses. They're like, man, this is really practical. Thanks for, thanks for organizing it and such. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. If you're approaching innovation, is there an ideal size? Uh, I don't know if there's an ideal size, and forgive me, because like, we sometimes will work with very large, complex organizations. Um, but generally, when it comes to the closer you get to decision making, I like less people in the room. <laughs> you know, um, I think innovation generally gets to that place where you're like, oh, can we really do this? And it stalls. So I think that's really important is that, you know, if you could, like in most cases, I'm assuming most people in here, like keeping it under 10, if you could keep it under six, even better. <laughs> but I, I don't have any like specific statistical data to kind of support that. Uh, and then bringing a variety of people, depending on if you're in the divergent phase, bringing people from like cross department, you know, like maybe bring somebody from finance, bring somebody from uh, people who are more into like communication because they're going to be thinking about okay you have this great vision how's how are we going to translate this to the rest of the church so you want to bring people different people in based on what type of innovation you're doing but that's a, that's a great question i think you got to find your spot every organization is different yeah 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 Yeah. Yeah, I would say move on to the new thing if you've already done kind of a assessment of the old thing. This is what I know the ministries that I've been a part of are notorious for is you execute on something and then you move on. There's no postmortem uh reflection or documenting of what worked and what didn't. Uh, the reason documentation is, you know, first I, I used to think, man, why do corporations document everything? I mean, some of it's liability. But the other thing is it really helps you understand what you just did. And that's very healthy for organizations. And how do you, and that'll also create efficiencies so that you can go back to that file to talk about, hey, we did this block party last year. And this is what we actually documented. Here's a quick report of what we did and what we said we were going to do next time. So uh, I think documentation is a good, like, test to see. Because if you're in a culture that constantly moves on without reflecting, uh, it's, you know, I'm going to assume people are going to be burnt out in that org. I'm pretty sure. Because you, you don't have the, because reflection allows you to also acknowledge, not just from stage, acknowledge the people who made it happen. And that investment, being intentional of pausing and telling them how much you appreciate them in a meaningful way, goes much longer than at the stage, hey, we want to thank all the volunteers. <laughs> you know, that's different. Yeah. Yes. 
how to overcome aversion and change through change. Um, yeah, it's so hard. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think part of it is like working really hard on clarity. And I, one way to help is this. Uh, we do this in business all the time. Is like when you enter a room, what is your value proposition to the person you're talking to? Value propositions basically can be formatted like this. Our blank, right, helps blank, whoever you're talking to, who want to blank, perform something. Either they want to feel better about themselves or they want to feel like they're contributing to something. And the way you create value is one of two ways. You either remove pain points or you create gains for them, right? That's value proposition. So if you sat down the next time you have a meeting with somebody and say, you know what, what's the value I'm bringing to this conversation? I promise you'll be a lot more confident about what you're talking about and you'll be clear about why we're having this conversation to begin with versus hoping the conversation goes well. So that, I think that would be part of it. Like it's a simple mental exercise, but before I go into a sales call, for example, all right, okay, I know what we're delivering. So if I know what we're delivering will give them far greater return than any money they'll spend on our company, I could actually ask for a lot. And I don't feel bad because it doesn't matter how much money they spend, we're going to give them that much more value. We're that confident in our work. So that's an easier negotiation than going in and going, oh, can you use us, please? Like, we never beg for work. That's, we know what we do, and we know what we could deliver. And so that's a little bit more clear engagement, and I think clients appreciate that as well. All right. It is 12.59 and 20 seconds, so enjoy the rest of the 31 seconds you have for free. Th thank you so much. Okay.